Well, we may be on time, but no one has ever charged me with being over-organized. <laughs> so last night we, we looked at the places in the Gospels where the word astonishment is used as, as the most frequent statement of people who, real people who met the real Jesus, that was their, their, ex, their experience with him. And this morning, I, I'd like to look at some of the astonishing things I, at least that I see in the Gospels about Jesus that both astonish me uh, intellectually, but also emotionally and, and at the level of the will. Uh, we're on a journey. You know, Jesus said, I'm the way, and we've, we've turned that into a package deal where then we get worried about, is he the only way? And, and what does that have to do? And we kind of miss, you know, in Spanish, the word for way is camino. It, it, it can mean the road. It, it can mean the journey. And, and so at the very least, Jesus was in a culture where people walked along caminos a lot. They walked along paths a lot. When he said, I'm the way, he must have at least at some level meant, I, I, I am a journey. You follow me. Uh, Dr. Raymond Brown, who uh, before his death was one of the greatest uh, Johannine scholars, probably, arguably the greatest, and I invited him to Westmont College when I was a chaplain to speak, and, and uh, so I got to spend a bunch of time with him, and up to then, uh, Dr. Brown had only been two red volumes on the Gospel of John, Raymond Brown, and I read them and studied them, and now I'm with the real Raymond Brown, and I we're just driving along, and you know, like always, you, you find it's just an ordinary human being. Uh, he's just spent his entire life studying the life of Jesus. So I, I asked that question that seemed kind of silly at the time. Uh, Dr. Brown, you studied Jesus all your life. What, is there like one thing you could say strikes you the most after all this study? And I, I thought he'd hesitate, you know, or... Uh, maybe even find the question impertinent. He, we're driving in the car, and I was driving to lunch with two nuns in Thousand Oaks. It was just kind of one of those you know, silly moments, like, I can't believe I'm getting to do this. What's your greatest thought from the teachings of Jesus? And he, he looked over at me, and I'm kind of driving, looking like this, and he said, follow me. I said, that's it? He said, yep. That's, that's the thing that strikes me the most about Jesus. He asked us to follow him. Now, what would it be like to meet somebody who was following Jesus more closely than you're used to experiencing? I, I had that experience. I, I, I had this unbelievable experience to spend two days with Mother Teresa. And uh, it, it, it was happenstance, it was sovereignty, it was uh, coincidence, it was synergy, I don't know what, but I was in charge of a, a little gathering inside the, my denomination's big gathering called the General Assembly, where we make all kinds of pronouncements and look at all kinds of studies and things. But inside that, this little group that was advocating for a position different than the denominational position, we were sitting around one day saying, how could we find a spokesperson for our viewpoint? And one of the, it was just a, a, an unlikely group of people. Uh, I was in my maybe mid-40s at that time, and we were about 12 of us sitting around at a little board meeting for this group. And this woman named Debbie from, from Minneapolis, Minnesota, she said, why don't we get Mother Teresa to come speak for us? 
Mother Teresa had just gotten the Nobel Prize. She was the most famous woman on planet Earth. And the other people in the group were said, that's a great idea, Debbie. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I'm thinking, are you crazy? I mean, how would you even get in touch with her? I'm thinking this. I'm not saying this. I'm looking really supportive. <laughs> I mean, and, but I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, how would you get in touch with Mother Teresa? Go to the, this is pre-Google, so go to like the Calcutta white pages and look under M for Mother or T for Teresa. I, and, and so I said, well, that's a wonderful idea. Debbie, uh, but I don't know how we'd get in touch with her. And she said, well, we could pray. And the other people were going, yeah, let's do that. And I'm thinking, are you guys kidding me? There's practically six billion people on the earth at that time, and uh, we're just going to, and I'm thinking, no, Bart, you're a minister. You're supposed to be like that stuff. So. I'm, okay, let's pray. So we pray. Well, within six weeks, I get a call from one of the people sitting at that table. His name was Tim. He called me. He said, Bart, you're never going to believe this. We're in touch with Mother Teresa. I said, come on, you're kidding me. He says, no. I said, how did it happen? He said, I, I was at this conference. I ran out to make a phone call at a phone booth. This shows you how long ago it was. Anybody know what a phone booth is? Uh, <laughs> and, and, and he said it was raining. It was in Wisconsin. And there were two phone booths. And they were under a little shelter. And I'm there making my call. And a Roman Catholic priest comes into the other one. And he's trying to make a call. And he can't get through to his person. Free voicemail. And I couldn't get through to my person, and so we started chatting. And I, he asked me what I was about and what I was doing, and we got in this nice conversation. I told him we were praying we could meet Mother Teresa. And he said, really? Well, why do you want to meet her? And I, I told him, and he said, well, what do you think? Why do you think her? And he, I told him, and he kept asking question after question. And then I said, well, you seem really interested in this. I mean, why? you're asking me lots of questions. And he said, well, it's sort of odd, but my... My uh, bishop just put me in charge of Mother Teresa's itinerary when she comes to the United States. I said, come on, Tim, you're making this up. Come on, really? He says, no, really? And he says, here's the number, because I just happened to be in charge of this event we were having. And, and he says, so you have to call Sister Frederick, who is Mother Teresa's right-hand nun, I guess you say. You know, I'm at, I, I, so I call Sister Frederick. Sure enough, she answers the phone. I tell her who I am. She pretends she knew I was going to call. And, and I said, so, okay, the, the General Assembly, is it's 10 days. So any of those 10 days, whenever mother can come. And I, I'm thinking, I'm calling her mother. I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian, you know. I, but it just, that's the way it worked. I, I haven't even met her yet. And she's changing my thinking. And so I said, well, so it's anyone from June 1st to June 10th, and it's in St. Louis. So she said, oh, that's wonderful. I said, well, do you know which day she'd like to come? And she says, oh, well, any day would be fine. Well, I said, well, okay, so should, should I pick a day? Oh, that'd be fine. I said, okay, the 5th, you know. She says, okay, fine. I said, so she'll be there on the 5th. Well, I don't know. 
<laughs> I said, well, what do you mean you don't know? Well, I, I don't know when she'll be there, really. I said, well, oh, I get it. Okay, well, when will you know that you'll know that she'll be there on that day? Well, I don't know. I said, okay, let's, let's go to something else here. How, do you know where she'll be before? Because we'll have to get her there. And, and do we buy her an airline? To, how does this work? I've, I've never managed a living saint before. So, I mean, she, she said, oh, oh, plane would be fine. Uh, or anyway. And I'm going, okay, so do we buy her a commercial ticket? She says, that'd be fine. Well, she says, you don't need to. They give her free tickets on all the airlines. I said, that's kind of cool. That's, it's almost worse becoming a saint. Uh, uh, maybe not. Uh, so she says, so I said, so do, when, when will you know where she'll be before that so we can buy the ticket? And she said, well, I don't know when I'll know. And then there's this long pause, and she says with this very sweet voice, I know this is very hard for you. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, and then she says, you know, let me just explain something to you. She said, Mother Teresa is, is led by the Spirit. And so if you buy her a ticket on an airplane, for example, and she's on her way to the airport and she sees a poor person on the side of the road, and the Holy Spirit, and she said it in a way like she wasn't sure I would understand what that meant, which is probably a reasonable assumption given what I've been saying. And, and, she, and she's driving along, and she sees a poor person on the side of the road, and the Holy Spirit tells her to stop and help that person, she will. She'll stop the car, she'll get out, and if the Holy Spirit tells her to go with that person, she'll go with that person. And then I said, you know, the Christ-like thing, I said, but she'd miss her plane. <laughs> and and she, she said, yeah, yeah, she would. I said, but then she wouldn't be at our gathering. And she says, yeah, that's right. And then she said, I know this is hard for you. She kept saying that. You see, if what would it be like to be with somebody who was actually following closely behind Jesus? It would be complicated. I called the man at the Hilton to arrange the ballroom for the meeting that she might get to if the Holy Spirit didn't tell her to help a poor person <laughs> on her way. And I told him, I said, you know, we need the ballroom for 2,000 people. We have Mother Teresa coming. He goes, this is fabulous. Yes, we want your business. I said, well, there's a little trick. You have to give it to us for free. He says, not a problem. If Mother Teresa is speaking, we, we got it. I says, he says, when will she be there? I said, this is going to be very hard for you. you know. We worked it out. She did get there. May tell you a little bit more about that but later, but it just... I didn't even meet her, and it was unlike anything I had ever experienced. That's what it must have been like. That's like a faint echo of what it must have been like walking around with Jesus. You know, just think of the first thing he did in his public work, so to speak. He, he became someone else's disciple, basically. Remember John the Baptist? 
John the Immerser, John the Drencher. I mean, you know, it wasn't like a nice little doctrine of baptism, John the Baptist. John the Drencher, he stuck people in water in a river. There was nothing, no precedent for that. The closest there was was that if you were a God-fearing Gentile and you wanted to be, align yourself with the Jewish faith, but you didn't want to go through their initiation rite, understandable, uh, 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 you could become a God-fearer, and you'd go through a whole bunch of washings. That was the closest there was to baptism. But John took it further. He says, no, you come down to the river, not just Gentiles. You, you, you people from the people of Abraham, you come down here, and we're not just going to give you a little washing. We're, you're going to go all the way under. You're going to have an entire change of your outlook. That's repentance. You're gonna, we're going to turn you inside out. And Jesus came to John for his drenching. Jesus, in a sense, became a disciple of John's before John became a disciple of Jesus. That isn't how I would have written the story. Why, why did Jesus do that? You know, some of it's lost on us, and, and I, I thank uh, a book by Richard Rohr, and I couldn't f remember which book, because I love all his books, uh, which one it was in, but he, he was the first one that opened my mind through his writings uh, just about this one obvious insight that John who was the son of Zechariah, who was a priest. The priesthood was uh, 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 hereditary. John should have been a priest, and priests work where? In the temple, right? And where is John? Not in the temple. He's not up in Jerusalem. He's down on the Jordan, and he's on the wrong side of the Jordan. He apparently didn't know that Israel started on this side, and he was over on the other side. He's in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing, not fulfilling the family obligation. And the symbolism is stunning, and that's what had, had escaped me for many, many years. The temple versus the river. John chose the most phenomenal symbol, the most different symbol, because in, in, in the days of Jesus, the temple had become incredibly exclusionary. Uh, one scholar I read recently said 80 to 90 percent of the Jews in Israel at that time were ceremonially not fit to go in very far to the temple past the court of the Gentiles. They, they were excluded for this reason, that reason, this reason, this reason. And so the place where, that was supposed to be the meeting place of people and God had become a, a place of exclusion and a club for a few who made the rule. So John chooses another symbol, a river. The, the temple, you had to prove you were, you were good enough to get in. A river, what's a river? Who can go to a river? Camels, donkeys, big people, short people, Jews, Gentiles, handicapped people, smart people, not so smart people, men, women, lepers, prostitutes, priests. You see, it's accessible to all. Jesus saw this symbol, I think, and went, that's the kingdom I'm going to be talking about, where it's accessible to all. It's fluid, and it's not static. The temple was static. It was in one place. It had ceremonies, rituals, traditions, river. It's, it's ironic because it's the same, and yet it's not. It's always flowing. It's always moving. It's got very, uh, it's got channels, it's got boundaries, it's got banks, but it flows along with it. That's, 
I think, God, I think John was trying to get us to say God and his love might be more like this river than this temple. Well, Jesus comes to him, as we all know. I think it's one of the most crucial things to understanding the life of Jesus. He comes to John, and of course, John says, you know, no, I mean, shouldn't this be the other way around? And Jesus says, no, let, let's do this. He goes into the river. He gets drenched, completely soaked. You know, we, the Baptists are right on that one. You know, the sprinkle thing. Sorry, Tom, I'm with you. That's how we do it. But, I mean, you've got to admit, it's, it's, it's something about that drenching experience of the love of God flowing around and over and you in it and it in you. And so Jesus goes down and he comes up and out. And as the late Dallas Willard, who I had the privilege of being a friend with, said that, the heavens were torn open for Jesus, and they never closed again. He lived his life from that moment on with the heavens open, with, with a true view of reality. You see, Jesus was always the bringer of reality. Uh, Jay mentioned to me the other day, he declares reality. Jesus lived with the heavens open, and, and, and in the three synoptic gospels, it's kind of like a Zeffirelli movie. You, 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 in one gospel, you get an angle from the crowd, and, and you hear God say to Jesus, this is my son in whom, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In Luke's gospel, you kind of get a Jesus eye view of it, and it says, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. I, I believe that was a pivot point for Jesus. He came up out of that water. Uh, I believe he was fully human. It's something we've really lost. We, we kind of think he's pretend human. Uh, that's really not good theology from any tradition. He's fully human. He, he's not exactly sure what's going to happen next. He comes up out of that water. Whatever it means that the heavens are torn open, he hears this voice. They hear this voice. The Spirit comes down on him like a dove, and the voice says, you're my beloved son. How would you like to hear that if you come up out of the murkiness of your own life, out of some of your own struggles, out of some of your own doubts, and you come up and the heavens open up and, and you hear this voice say, you are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. You're my beloved son. Now, you've got to ask the question, what had Jesus done up to this point to be beloved. He hadn't preached a sermon. Best we know, he hadn't done a miracle. He hadn't chosen any disciples. He hadn't hiked around and spoken in synagogues and on hillsides. He hadn't sent the 72 out. He hadn't done any specifically spiritual thing, religious thing. I mean, he'd made some tables and chairs and probably some yoke. I mean, he was a craftsman. Joseph had taught him this craft. You know, there was a legend in the early days in the, about second century, I believe, where they said, people said they actually had some tables he'd made. And the word was they were well made. You are my beloved son. You made some good tables. Really, seriously. I like that one over there, you know, and their house. And those yoke are kind of light. You know? 
really good. The oxen like him, you know? And No, it's not about what he had done, and certainly not about the religious thing it was done. It was about his core identity, out of which everything else flowed, was the belovedness of himself in the eyes of his Abba, in the eyes of his father. He had, a, he had the identity that we're meant to take on. But how many of us live with that identity? An identity of belovedness, an identity that says the love of God is meant to flow through us like a river, washing us, cleansing us, guiding us. And along the way, there's going to be people that access that river with us, and no one is meant to be excluded, only self-exclusion. And even those, remember the parable Jesus said when he said there's a man who had a wedding feast and everything's ready and go out and tell them and they began to make their excuses and he says, well, go out a little further. In those days, the poor lived on the outskirts, not at the centers of town. He says, go out further. They come back. They say, well, he says, there's still room. I want my place full. See, that's God's heart. He says, go way out in the hedgerows. That's where the bandits and the drunkards and... And he says, and compel them to come in. I've often wondered, why, why compel? Why force them to come into a banquet? It actually makes a lot of sense. These are the very people who felt so unworthy. You, you'd have to compel them to come inside. Their clothes weren't right. They, they hadn't lived the right life. They, 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 had, they had the marks of, of uh, the brutality of their own will or the will of others that marked them. And, and, and someone had to compel them into the loving banquet of God. You see, it's not exclusion. It's, it's the flowing love of God. We have friends in Guatemala their names are the Hernandezes, Don Salomon and Doña Mary Hernandez. And uh, they're in their late 70s now. They're partners with us. We're covenant friends. We made a covenant in their little home in Uspantan in the mountains of Guatemala in what's called the Ashil Triangle where the civil war in Guatemala began that took 200,000 lives in that little town. They would wake up in the morning and they would see dead bodies each morning in their, in their little town. A truck would come by, a flatbed truck to pick up the bodies. And Solomon and Mary had, had, had become known as lovers of people in the name of Jesus. They, they were Methodist pastors, both of them, the primitive Methodist Evangelical Church of Guatemala. And, and they had this idea that they should start loving the Mayan Indians. In Guatemala, you have sort of the, los blancos, the white folks, mainly Spanish descent. Then you've got los uh, ladinos, the, the mixed race, brown skin. And then you have los indios, the, the Mayan Indians, the indigenous people who don't even speak Spanish. Most of them, they speak their own languages, 26 languages, if I remember right. And, and so Salomon and Mitty were from this middle group, highly educated. They learned the language of the disenfranchised, uh, Quiche, so that they could talk to them about the love of Jesus. But their church was all Ladinos. But they started going out to the Mayans. The Mayans started coming into the church. The Ladino elders of the church were not ecstatic about this. So they, they called Salomon and Mitty in. Their pastors, the elders did, and said, um, you know, we noticed these Mayan people are coming to the church. And Salomon and Mary said, yeah, praise the Lord. Isn't this great? 
And they're going, oh, brother, this is so wonderful. You know, this is fabulous. You know, we're so happy those people are here, you know. But we notice they don't feel comfortable. And so we think we've taken up a little collection, and we're going to build them their own church because they just don't feel right with us. And it was a moment because this was a church that uh, their parents had started Parents or grandparents, I don't remember. And, and, and here the elders of this church were saying, we don't want these people. And yet they were saying it in veiled religious language that sounded like they were doing something nice. And they had to make a decision at that moment. And here's what they said. The elders said, we'll buy them, their, we'll fix them their own church where they will feel more comfortable. And, and our friend said, if you're going to kick them out, they just called it what it was, you have to kick us out too. So pray about it and tell us what you decide. So the elders, they did take it seriously. They did pray, and then they kicked them all out. It was crushing for our friends because their whole idea was we bring people into the temple, into la iglesia con paredes, the the church with walls. And they now had no church. They had no livelihood. They would plan to do this their whole life. They, much like John Wesley, the original Methodist, they looked out and they had this thought. They said, maybe the Mayan people are our church. And then they said, we will build a church sin paredes, without walls. And for the last 40 years, they've been doing that. Building a church without wall. They, ironically, they planted 16 churches. Nazarene church, Pentecostal church, Methodist church. They've got two Catholic churches. I don't know how they did that, but they did it. <laughs> and every church they plant, they don't even mean to. They just go love people, meet their real needs, and then they, the people want them to be their pastor. They go, no, no, because our church is sin paredes, without walls. But you just, and then the people say, well, what kind of church should we have? And they say, whatever you want. You want to be Baptist? Okay. All right, you're Baptist. You know, God will provide you a pastor. Well, this idea of a non-exclusionary force of love that flows through real life, not, not sacred versus secular, because Jesus came to declare a kingdom that there is no uh, secular place in that kingdom. There is no place away where God is not. Uh, a man I've been reading recently and listening to a lot, a former Trappist monk who studied under Thomas Merton, his name is Jim Finley, he says, we're walking in what we're looking for. That's exactly what Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, my hand is right here. You don't have to, I don't have to look. Where's my hand? Where did I leave that, you know? It's right here. You're walking in God whom you're looking for. What's lacking is your understanding, your openness. Jesus said, you've got eyes, but you don't see. You, you seem to have ears, but you're not hearing. It's all around you. God is coming toward you in love through everything all of the time. That's the kingdom of God. So when we were with Mother Teresa, she kept astounding us. Every place, I'll close with this. I, get, I finally get her into the hotel. And I tell her, well, 
the meeting starts at, let's say it was 10 o'clock, I don't remember. We'd like you there at 9. And she said, well, I'm going to be with my sisters, which is in the ghetto of St. Louis where we first met her. And uh, I tell you, if you've ever been around somebody who's like a living saint, she was about this tall. She was, I think, 78 years old at the time, maybe 80. And she was, she was like a nine-year-old child. <laughs> And like the most brilliant person I've ever met and one of the most amazing leaders I've ever met. There's no question who was in charge when she walked in, even though she gave no sense of uh, arrogance or anything. So we get her into the hotel, and I've, I've planned a route for her because at this time, I mean, there's, she's mobbed by people. I planned the route kind of through the back alleys of the hotel to get her from point A to the ballroom where we got 2,000 people waiting to hear her. So I'm going, okay, mother, um, come along here, and, and I've got this route for you, okay, and she's just giggling, kind of literally giggling, and, we're, and I get into the first hallway, and it's packed with people, and what I had not thought is every employee of that huge hotel, the Hilton Hotel, uh, wanted to see her, all the maids, all the cooks, all the janitors, all the security people, and I'm... I'm trying to get her to move along. And yeah, you know, you don't kind of want to push Mother Teresa. I mean, it just didn't seem right. And, and, and she's stopping by everybody. You know, she's stopping and making the sign of the cross. And bow, I mean, everybody. And I'm kind of going, move it along, Mother, move it along. Yeah, I mean, the disciples had that with Jesus, remember? Who touched me? Well, he did, she did. I mean, there's about a thousand people here who could have touched you, you know. So we're going along. We get into the industrial-sized kitchen of the Hilton Hotel. You know, all these huge things. And all the people are all the, who are the cooks and things are lined up to meet her, except for two, two gentlemen in the back. And uh, it's pretty clear they don't really care about whoever this is, Mother Teresa, and they're back there chopping things and and she's walking like this. There's a bunch of people here. And she just out of the corner of her eye, she sees these two. And they're like to, to the back of this room, that far away. And she was like a magnet. She just kind of goes, and I'm trying to reel her in, you know. <laughs> and she just breaks through the group, starts walking right toward these guys, you know. And they're over there looking pretty cool. Just, we don't really care about them. And they look up, and she's getting closer and closer. And they're starting to wipe their hands on their aprons, you know. And, and then they start kind of going like this. <laughs> and she just gets up to them and kind of blesses them, you know. You see, it was just beautiful. She comes back in. I'm finally, finally, thank heavens, I finally got her close to the door where people like you are waiting to hear her. And as we're walking out of the kitchen, she says this. She says, all this food, and she points to the kitchen. She says, they throw it away, no? And I said, I, I think they do throw the leftovers away. And she looked at me and she said, my poor could use it. And it wasn't like an observation. It was like a command. <laughs> and, like, and what are you going to do about it? And I found myself saying, I'll look into it, mother. <laughs> <laughs> So then she went and gave this marvelous talk and you know, on the way in. Her sister Frederick, who is with her, says, Mother, we have to go meet the bishop afterwards. She said, I already said hi to him. <laughs> and, uh, 
she's, she says, no, we really have to. And she says, are you sure? She wanted to get back to the city where the work was. You know, she wanted to be back there. That was the spirit. And that was but a faint echo. As much as I respected her, she's still a faint echo of what it would have been like to walk with the living Jesus Christ who is still alive and he's walking in every arena of your life. He is the way. He is a journey. He, he, there's no part of your life that's off limits. And you don't have to go find him. You just have to open your eyes, open your hearts, open your will. You, you may have to quit focusing on certain things that make it so that you can't see him. But he is the life. John said it this way. He said, if you found Jesus, you found life. If you found Jesus, you found life. And if you haven't, you haven't. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the church without walls. Thank you for your love flowing through less like a temple that excludes and more like a river which is accessible and flowing. Help us to find our identities the way Jesus found his identity in you. Help us to believe the almost unimaginable truth that we are beloved daughters. We are beloved brothers and sons and and that our belovedness is because you created us, not because we've done anything. Help us to anchor ourselves in what Jesus anchored himself in, which was his belovedness in you, so that that belovedness might be shared with everybody we meet. In his name, amen. Putting up. Here's the question we're going to just play with for three or four minutes. How much does our culture affect the way we live out our faith? And in, in parentheses, in what ways are we blinded by cultural myths and have transported them into our beliefs and behaviors? We picked this one because 80%, if not more, of our questions are coming by how does culture mix with our own faith? So that's very much a conversation that we're having here. So Carl, Jay, Bart's coming. How much, I kind of like the parentheses part, in what ways are we blinded by cultural myths and have transported them into our beliefs and behaviors? We want Bart to answer that. Oh, Bart. Yeah. Oh, there, there's Bart. I don't have my mic on. Oh, I didn't have a mic on. The answer to that is... <laughs> You're up. Am I going first? Yeah, you started, so you have to finish. I started talking. Shoot. I hate it when I do that. I mean, uh, there's, there's constantly a kind of th a theological, anthropological debate of is Christ in culture? Is he above culture? Is he next to culture? Right. Um, you know, and that's a big, big and real discussion. I mean, there's, there, there are a number of ways to answer that. I think the way I've started thinking is... Um, Let me, say the, let me say the negative first. If, if, I, if I decide Jesus affects culture and changes culture, I've personally found that puts too big of a burden on my shoulders to carry. So then I'm thinking, 
Jesus wants to change America, Jesus wants to change American culture, then Jesus is involved in politics and society and all these things, and then what's my role? And I get lost in that, frankly, I get lost in that. So um, I actually just don't think about that. I mean, to be really honest, I don't think about that question anymore. Mm -hmm. How does Jesus interact with culture? That's too big of a question. I'm just one guy named Carl. I'm doing the best I can to follow Jesus and let him change my heart and my life. And, but what do we believe? Does our culture affect? That was the first part of the question. Does mm -hmm. our culture affect what we believe? Of course it does. I think it's almost hard. It's asking the fish to discern the water. It's hard for us to know because that's all we know. It's hard for us to know mm -hmm. what of following Jesus has been affected by my Western Protestant evangelical American culture and what so it's hard to describe. The thing that's caused us to believe what we believe and kind of the angle that we come at it from is living in the Middle East for 12 years, being surrounded by Muslims, actually forced us to answer every question. But why do you baptize people under the water? And then my, you know, the first answers are always just, well, because, you know, that's the way we do it. And then realizing pretty quickly that's not a very satisfying answer. So everything, why do you take communion? Why do you do it like that? Why do you have a little cup and a little wafer? Why is it that way? Um, everything that we hold, all the sacraments, all the, the, the doctrines, uh, the Trinity, in Christian evangelical trin uh, Trinitarian theology, we explain the Trinity very quickly, very easily, very simply. One and three, three and one. I mean, that doesn't make sense. Mm. Those, those numbers actually don't work. That's not good math. And so when, they, when, when Muslims started asking me hard questions that forced me to drill down as far as I possibly could to the core which as Philip so eloquently said several times in his talk, is Jesus, he's the magnifying glass. So that, there's, there's a little bit of a rambling thought about that. Somebody help me out, rescue me, Bart, That's good. Jay. Jay, you, you, if you wanna to add to, no pressure, we'll. Uh... Well, I mean, I said, I said something last night, for, for me, the greatest way that I begin to see where I've come from is by being with people that, uh, are from other environments. I, I actually am starting to wonder if it's possible to have a good sense of your own culture and values without being around people of other culture and other values. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I think maybe one of the most important things we could do to grow in our life with Jesus is be with people from other countries that follow Jesus. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. uh, because it is, it's almost instant. Yeah. <laughs> that you realize that you're crisscrossing and you begin to realize that you've added things. There's, to use Bart's great illustration, you've added ornaments mm -hmm. that you didn't know were there until you recognize them in one another. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the, the desperate need we have for kind of our global family, mm -hmm. but then also uh, those who, like you said, don't necessarily have any life or background with Jesus ask you the most simple questions that you simply don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't even remember how you uh, ad adopted that uh, mm -hmm. in, in when they ask. But if you have to be in the conversation, you have to engage people that are a lot different than you. Mm -hmm. And that's terrifying because it takes away all of our control. Right. And we like to just, I mean, even in a space like this, we like to be with people who share most of our assumptions right. so we can parse all of the small components of that's our That's that boundary. That boundary community where you look for people you look alike, have shared norms, shared values. Living in San Francisco, that's uh, a culture that's heavily unchurched, let's say. 
And yet, like Paul would say, and Jesus modeled, the kingdom is not without witness and culture. And my problem was that I found I was thinking early on incorrectly for me that it was only through the church and buildings with the right sign that I was seeing the kingdom at work. When in fact, out in my culture, if a muni bus driver stops and lets somebody get on who's a little late, there's an act there of God at work in culture itself that I can learn from, as well as when I step into more designated religious circles. Mm. And so I find if it's Christocentric, if it's Christ-centered, both culture, as well as those who say that they are being the religious, could be expressions and places to learn what's the kingdom look like. So we'll keep it going. So it's not anti-culture, and it's not like jump into culture. It's, uh, it's, it's with Jesus we go. Okay.